Human relationships, they uh, can be difficult things, can't they, sometimes? We've probably all of us had run-ins with people who seem to be spoiling for a fight. Maybe uh, the bully at school or at work, or the mugger in the street, or those who like to park at Whole Foods. (laughs) If you've ever tried to find a space there, the one in East Liberty, you'll know it's impossible. It's like Mad Max, only with organic vegetables. (laughs) Crazy. But a parking lot dust-up over a space is no big deal. It doesn't really matter. Probably you'll never see those people ever again in your life. The much more difficult relationships are those where you will. And I think often one of the reasons why we find our more intimate relationships so challenging is because you can't hide who you really are with people who know you so well. We've been looking at our identity in Christ Jesus that is new. It is given to us entirely by grace. And we've been looking at how our new identity in Christ starts to manifest in our activity as our behavior and way of life grows in faith up. And nowhere will your real ID be more apparent than in these three parallel pairs of human relationships that we find right here in Colossians chapter 3. Let's turn to Colossians 3 together. As we look at wives and husbands, children and parents, and then workers and the boss. You might be able to run around with a spiritual fake ID, pretending to be in Christ. You might be in church, but not in Christ. But those who know who you really are, those who live with you and work with you and see what you do day in, day out will likely see through it. They will probably know whose you really are. Now, I want to give you a caveat before we begin, before we really get into this. These few verses of Scripture have probably been misused more than any others in the whole of the Bible to justify all kinds of evil behavior. The subjugation of women, the abuse of children, even the keeping of slaves have been justified by this passage of scripture, each of those ideas is literally the polar opposite of what Paul really intends. And you start to see that as you look very carefully at what he's saying. So look carefully, verse 18, stay awake. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, we might look at that verse and we might feel a little bit uncomfortable. From the perspective of equality, we might find this verse controversial because it uses the word submit. The Colossians listening to this would have agreed with you. They would have found it equally controversial, but for all of the opposite reasons. You see, in a Roman household, a wife was never asked to submit to the husband. She was obliged to obey. To obey, it's the word that was normally used in that context for that relationship, hypakuo. It means, literally means to under-listen. Akuo, from which we get words like acoustic. It's a, a listening word. 
It means do as you're told. That's what a wife had to do. You hear it, you do it. If you're a wife, that's your job. You get what you get and you don't get upset. He says, jump, you say, how high? That was the arrangement of the day. Paul doesn't use that word. Paul's word, submit, hypotasso, it means to place yourself under an authority that is mutually agreed. It's a very different kind of a word. Uh, Why do that? It's a revolution, really. It revolutionizes the relationship. It changes the way households worked and were ordered. It introduces the concept of choice that wasn't there before. Why do it? Why revolutionize the relationship? Well, there's a theological reason for a start. He says, because it is fitting. It is appropriate. It is proper for those in the law. Seven times in this little section, Paul uses the phrase in the Lord, or one very similar to the phrase in the Lord. It's theologically appropriate for wives to submit to husbands, to choose to do it, but why? Start with the identity. Remember what I've been saying. Good theology begins with identity first and gets on to activity second. Start with the identity. Think about whose you really are. Think about your real ID. If wives are in the Lord and husbands are in the Lord as well, then both the husband and the wife have a new ID. Their new ID is equally unmerited. Both of them have been given this new identity entirely by grace. And thus, under the Lord, they are completely equal. Having both found a new identity equally, both are then called to a new activity equally as well. Wrapping these concepts together, our equal identity in Christ, our equal activity in Christ, weaving them together, Philippians chapter 2 says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, there is his identity, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. There is Christ's activity. By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ, who was God in very nature and essence and substance, chose to put himself down to lift us up. And so, Paul says, wives... Be like Jesus. Do the same. Finding your identity is equally in Christ with your husband. Submit equally to him in Christ Jesus. And just as the Colossians reached for their cabbages to start hurling at Paul, for daring to suggest that a woman of all people could have some modicum of say in what her life looked like and some kind of choice in this matter, Paul makes it even worse. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives. This is a shock. This is a reciprocal command. Just to make it clear how utterly shocking it is that Paul would dare to say, by the way, husbands, you also owe a correlating duty to your wives. Husbands at this time had an unfettered discretion over how to treat their wives. The scholar Wayne Grudem says there was a tendency in the Roman world for men to rage bitterly against their wives. Physical, 
emotional, psychological abuse was commonplace. It was perfectly allowed. Men took advantage of women with impunity and without compunction all the time. But Paul says, in the Lord, that is no longer acceptable. If you're in the Lord, you can't act like that anymore. Husbands now in the Lord are called to love their wives. In the Ephesians version of this list, he goes even further. He says, husbands must love their wives as Christ loved the church. How did Christ love the church? We just heard it. He gave up his life for her. Husbands are called as they lead their households to subjugate everything that they are and have to the needs and the person of their wife, to die on a cross for their wife if need be, because that is what Christ does for us, to perfectly subjugate every aspect of everything you are for the sake of your spouse. Husbands, hands up if you've managed to do this perfectly for your whole life. So I hadn't quite finished that sentence, and someone actually started putting their hand up uh, at the 8 o'clock service, and then they put it down again because they realized, oh, okay, always. No, no, no. But, I mean, every aspect of our human life is, is tainted by the fall. It is, it is spoiled by sin. It is disordered and, and messed up. Every aspect of it. We have all failed. When the kids were very young, I once got a new CD for the car. And I was really looking forward to this new album. It was by my favorite artist, the Norfolk miserableist, Tom McRae. He is a little bit miserable, isn't he, love? Yeah, yeah. He, he whines. There are some adult themes in his uh, broken records. But what I love is, is the soulful depth of Tom McRae's misery. And uh, we all went out in the car as a family, and I thought, you know, this would be a great opportunity for us all to listen to some Tom McRae. And as we set off in the car, um, I need to remember what side of the road I was driving on, that side, I looked in the mirror and I could see something in the back in Ben's hand, Ben's little four-year-old fingers clutching something round and shiny, which I ignored. Um, But then he shoved it forward and held it aloft and said, Daddy, can we listen to this? It was not Tom McRae. It was his new Osborne children's storybook of pirates on CD. (laughs) Catherine caught me trying to persuade my four-year-old son that we should listen to Tom McRae instead. And then she leant over and she said, "Um, what have you been talking about in church recently? I said, mutual submission. And then she sang a song. She said, it's not about you, honey. (laughs) So we listened to the pirates instead. Every aspect of our lives is fallen. It is tainted by the curse of the fall. I am a stinking flesh sack, belching forth the vapors of my own sin, fallen and disordered. And notwithstanding my identity as a saint in Christ Jesus, that is sealed. That is home. I know where I'm going. I know who I am. My activity is always going to be a work in progress. Always, sometimes every one of us, husbands, wives, any human of any kind, will be selfish. And our spouses, if we happen to be married, will have a front row seat, a ringside seat to our sin and our sanctification. They get to see both in all of its horror and glory. 
But, verse 19 says, do not be harsh. Do not make indignant or inflame with grief. It's a, a sort of red word, like a sore, like a skin sore, an abrasive kind of a, an image, I think, to inflame with grief, like a blister. And many spouses have just rubbed each other. We're abrasive, aren't we, some of us? Many spouses have just rubbed each other raw with, with years of, of, of low-grade knuckleheadery. Haven't we, guys and girls? Uh, many of us have, have just been worn down by years of, of just low-level sin that has rubbed up and just grown tiresome. And maybe you've looked at your marriage and you've looked at your spouse and you've looked at their ways and you've just wanted to give up. Some of us will be saying, wow, I'd love to be in a marriage where the worst thing that ever happened was something with a CD, you know, eight years ago or whatever. And, I, you know, I'm cleaning up this is the pulpit. I'm, just, I'm selecting a, a favorable story. They were far, far worse. But, but some of us will look at that and say, you know, I, I'm in my marriage. I, I've experienced really egregious sin. Or maybe, maybe I've committed a, a egregious sin. I've been caught doing that thing and, and I'm ashamed. And maybe you've lived with a sense of guilt. Maybe that marriage is already broken because of, of those things. The good news is that no matter how severe uh, these things have been in your marriage, it is possible in the Lord to find healing. It is possible for that raw patch, that tender patch, uh, to start to, to be uh, redeemed and put right. It's possible if you're still in your marriage, or it's still possible to, to remarry a divorced spouse. It's possible for your marriage to be put together. It's possible when both the husband and the wife are in Christ, when their identity is sealed and their activity is individually catching up, it is possible for a marriage to become healed and profoundly changed. And no one will notice more. And no one will be grateful more for your activity changing than the person that you married. Even the worst of marriages can be put right. And Kat and I have seen it over and over again. We've seen the couple on the stage leading the marriage weekend tell stories about how their marriage was completely broken. And 20 years down the line, their job is to put other marriages back together because of the overwhelming power of Jesus Christ. That is the hope of the book of Colossians. Without that change of identity, though, there is no hope of activity ever catching up. Second relationship, children. Looking at parents and children now. Verse 20. Children, obey. That is the obey word. Obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Whoa! Sorry, guys. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. What a bummer, you know, for the children. <laughs> and we know it's one of the Ten Commandments, it's not news. But addressing the children directly like this in the company of all the grown-ups is news. You know, this is like Paul saying, guys, you're more important than all of these old people around. Paul says, you know, park the old crowd for a minute and zoom in on the young crowd. I'm going to address you and they can all just wait. This is a profoundly shocking statement in a culture that thought children were dirt, that had absolutely no interest in what any of the kids wanted. Paul pauses the story and says, I'm going to address the children directly, and the grown-ups can just wait their turn. This is breaking new ground. This is revolutionizing another relationship because children 
had no rights at all. Dionysius of Halicarnassus, remember him? Uh, Writing about Roman law said this, the Romans gave virtually full power to the father over his son, whether he thought proper to imprison him, to scourge him, to put him in chains and to keep him at work in the fields or to put him to death. And this, though the son were already engaged in public affairs, though he were numbered among the highest magistrates and though he were celebrated for his zeal for the commonwealth. Even if your son has grown up and left home and become a Supreme Court judge with unimpeachable credentials, you can still beat him up, sell him or kill him if you feel like it. So what Paul says in verse 21 is quite radical. Fathers, this word means parents, mothers and fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. You know how you're allowed to have them killed? Well, don't discourage them too much while you do it, will you? (laughs) Don't dishearten their spirits. This reciprocal command to the parents now about how they treat their children is... Is, is serious. It's breaking new ground. Bishop Tom Wright says that as parents, our primary duty is to live out the gospel to our children. That's the most important thing. If we keep putting them down, we're never going to call them up. Do not provoke your children. Oh, it's so tempting, isn't it? It's so tempting to provoke your children, especially when they're provoking you. And let's be honest, with a few years under our belt, we're better at provoking than they are. We've learned, haven't we, where their tender spots are? We've learned where their wounds are. We've learned exactly where to put the knife in and how to twist it. We are awesome at hurting our kids. And sometimes we want to. Because children can be immensely provocative and hurtful sometimes. They spill things, they break things, they say things, and sometimes they even smell. I vomited in my mother's new-to-her Mini Clubman 750 on the velour seats. I dropped a bottle of Sprite, a big two-litre bottle of Sprite, on the floor of the house. The lid came off, and it shot through the house like a guided missile and sprayed sticky liquid over everything they owned. I set fire to my bedroom floor. I shot a drain pipe. I got an ear infection on the cruise of a lifetime, and my parents had to spend the whole time in the cabin. I took my mum's brand new Citroen AX off-roading and I filled it with dust. It's not an off-roading car. It's not an on-roading car either, because it's French. (laughs) But that's beside the point. They listen to these sermons now and I just want to say, I'm really sorry. I'm sorry. I was awful. Parents, we have so much power, whatever our kids have done to us, to do worse to them. And when our children hurt us, and they do, our kids know how to hurt us. They know what to say, they know what to do, they know what to wear. When our children hurt us, it is tempting to hurt them back. And Paul is not talking about overreacting once in a while, a blow-up that gets out of hand, a little ruck at the house that, that we didn't see coming. He's talking here about the systematic belittling of the kids, that the cajoling of the children and the forcing of the children to do something that they don't want to do, the compelling of the children to be something that they are not, and attacking them for not being who and what you want them to be. 
to go to this college, to do that sport, to have these friends, to wear those clothes. It's the constant belittling and hectoring that is in view here. Why is it so important to you that your child be exactly what you want them to be? Perhaps it's because you are not exactly what you want yourself to be. Paul says, if your identity can be in Christ, why can't your child be in Christ as well? Third relationship pair. Verse 22. Bond servants, sometimes translated slaves, as Meissen read, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now this is another shocking statement right here. Because including slaves in the same breath of public teaching as masters has never been done before. This is breaking new ground on a scale that has never been seen before. And clearly this is a verse that has been misused by the modern church, has it not? But the Bible is clearly not giving authority to that pernicious 18th and 19th century practice of buying and selling humans any more than its modern 21st century counterpart in human trafficking and forcing those who've been trafficked to work at night in certain industries. Many, many wicked people have used these verses for their own human gain, taking them out of context. Let's put them back into context. A bond servant was just a very ordinary form of work at the time. Sometimes what would happen is a household slave, having been set free, having served their time, having the choice, would choose to go back and work for their old master and become a bonded servant like this. It was uh, not always perfect, not always a, a picture of perfection. Like all jobs, there were ups and downs and good and bad masters. But it was an ordinary form of employment at the time. So if we're looking for a modern word, not a translation word for word, but a translation idea for idea, concept for concept, we can just say this. Employees, obey the boss. Not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. There's an old Tom and Jerry cartoon where this happens. And Tom has been chasing Jerry all around the house and trashing the place. And you know, he throws a tomato up the curtains and then you know, opens a fountain pen and goes up the wall. And you know, there's chaos breaking out. Jerry uh, pours a load of coal in through the living room window, I think, at one point, and even brings in a donkey and puts it in the front room. And uh, the, the, the owner of the house, the lady, she comes home and she finds this chaos. And she admonishes Thomas and she said, you've got to clean all this stuff up. And then she goes away again. And every time she comes into the house, there's this frenzy of activity. As he stands on one leg and he cleans with one hand and he vacuums with the other and he sweeps with his tail. And then the lady goes away again and he chases Jerry and trashes the place again. And she comes back and catches him and the frenzy of activity again. And Paul was a fan of Tom and Jerry. And I think he's saying, don't be like Tom. Not, not Tom, obviously. Be like Tom. It was great. Don't be like Tom the cat. Sorry. Don't mean to like, oh! That's awful abuse of the pulpit. Um, be, be, don't be like Tom the cat in the series, Tom and Jerry. Don't be a frenzy of activity when the boss is watching and a layabout when the boss goes away. Uh, whatever you do, work heartily. Why? 
Because whether your earthly boss is there or not, watching or not, you have an ultimate boss, a heavenly boss. Work as for the Lord, not for men. If you're in the Lord, you're working for the Lord. So whether your earthly boss is around or not, who cares? Whatever our social position, it also means we all have one master, one Lord. So whether you are the CEO or the chairman or someone of a very important position in this world, even you have a boss. And even you are under this injunction to the slaves. Verse 25 drives it home because they're trying to get out of it. So he says it again. There is no partiality. You're all the same. It is a profound statement. There is a diversity of roles in this world, but there is a unity of identity. Our identities are identical in Christ. There's no distinction in Christ. And just as they try and wiggle out of it, he says it again. Chapter 4, verse 1, drive it home. Masters, Treat your bond servants justly and fairly, equitably and equally. So a, a Christian master, a boss, has an equal responsibility to his slave. The same responsibility that his slave has to him, he has to his slave. The CEO has the same responsibility to those who work uh, for him or her as the workers have to him or her. One of the most disturbing things about the early church to the communities that weren't yet saved was this weird thing the Christians all did when they shared in Holy Communion. You had slaves sitting at table sharing drinks and meals in Holy Communion with, with people who ran the town. You had you know, high-status Roman guards sitting at table with low-level you know, slaves from, from you know, Greece and, and, and and, and Bithynia and, and, and Scythians and barbarians all around the table together. Could not be clearer, could it, that in Christ there is one identity. That's the thing that overwhelms them all. And, and, and that's the theology. What about the practice? Why are these relationships so important? Why are we zooming in on these, on these parents and on these and on these marriages and, and on these work relationships, why these three and not all the others? I think the reason is because the way we behave in these core relationships is foundational to how we reach out to people in our second and third circles of relationship. As we grow up, the church is called to go out. Verse 3 says, pray that God may open a door to us for the word. We should be looking for opportunities to share our faith, to share the good news with non-believers, to anyone that we meet whose identity is yet to be in Christ. We should be desperate to share Christ with them so that they can find their human relationships healed and changed and transformed and renewed as well. And you see the problem, don't you? If our marital relationships and our generational relationships and our occupational relationships are falling to pieces and everyone closest to us avoids us like the plague because we're horrible and our activity is the opposite of Christ's, why on earth would anybody want to hear anything we have to say about Jesus? The British National Health Service is investigating 3,000 fake doctors right now 
uh, men and women with white coats and stethoscopes and absolutely no credentials, <laughs> with a fake medical ID, they're on the payroll of the NHS. And not surprisingly, someone's found them out. A few of them have got caught. You know, I need 15 milligrams of nonsense, stat, if they don't know any medicine. <laughs> if we can't live out the gospel of grace with our spouses, our kids and our parents and our colleagues of all people. Perhaps we don't know any Christ. Perhaps we don't know him. That's why we don't know how to act like him. The good news is, of course, unlike a medical degree in Christ, you can get a real ID like that by grace, qualified instantly by the work of Christ on the cross. And when you've been qualified instantly by grace, by the work of Christ on the cross, and you have a new ID, it's only a matter of time before your activity starts to catch up, and those closest to you are in for a treat, because they have a lifetime to enjoy watching your activity, behold your identity, and grow up. Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we confess that many of us are wounded by the behavior of those closest to us, but also that disturbed by our own behavior. Every one of us in the room has been affected by the fall and has been far less than perfect in these core relationships. Lord God, some of us have been particularly wounded by really egregious sin. Maybe we've started to lose hope. We pray now for a relational miracle. Pray, God, that each and every one of us, as we picture those particular sore points, would find complete healing. Firstly, healing of ourselves in you with that identity. But secondly, also healing uh, for those around us, that they too would be conformed to your likeness and repent. They too would would call home and say that they're sorry. And Lord God, as, as you do that work, Would we be encouraged to go out and share that good news with those around us that are lost? In the merciful, matchless name of Jesus Christ the righteous. Amen. Let's stand together and let's affirm our faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen.
sit or kneel to pray. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for the church the world over, and we pray for the witness of the church, that our churches would be places of such tenderness and healing and care and unity that a broken world would look in and long to join. Father, we pray for our leaders, especially the vestry of this church, for their ministry and for their wisdom and for their guidance and for their decision-making, for the protection of their own home lives and their own hearts. Lord God, we pray for this and every nation, especially lifting up this morning Donald, our president, and Thomas, our governor, that we would lead them to godly decisions, surround them with wise counsel. And Father, for ourselves and our friends and our families, we pray, Father, for, for any who are sick or lonely or bereaved or lost or confused or wounded, especially, Lord, in these core relationships. We pray for healing. We pray for restoration. We pray for forgiveness. And if for any reason you wish to name someone aloud or quietly in your heart, let us do so now. In the name of Christ, amen.